Palm Sunday. We're going to take a moment, next 40 minutes or so, to look at a section of Scripture, Mark 11. Mark chapter 11. So you can turn your Bible on or open it up to Mark chapter 11. And we're going to take a look at this section called the triumphal energy, entry. Okay, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And Palm Sunday is the Sunday that Jesus and his disciples went up into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, knowing that by Friday of that week, he would be crucified on the cross, and that following Sunday, he would rise from the dead, resurrected for his his people that he died for. So so this section we're going to look at shows Jesus entering into Jerusalem. And one of the things that you're going to see is that Jesus is actually looking for something. He's, he, and you're going to see this highlighted over and over again, that he's looking for something. And what he's looking for in Jerusalem, so we want to take it from the ancient Near East and the time period of Jesus and apply it to our lives, what he was looking for in them is what he's looking for in us. Jesus is looking for something. You ever thought about that? Like, like when God, God we believe, the Scriptures teach, he sees all things. He sees history. He knows everyone by name. He knows the, 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 the hairs on our head. For some, it's easier to count than others. But, but he knows all things. And, and he sees all things. Have you ever had this thought? Have you ever wondered when God looks down, his eyes roving to and fro over the earth, what is he looking for? What does he see and what is he looking for? He's actually looking for something. Think about the number of things that God would say, I can't look at that. I can't even look at that. So there's clearly things he's not looking for, right? Or how about the amount of times he looks out and he goes and he's just, that wasn't what I meant. That wasn't what I was looking for. And then how many times does God look down and look and say, that's what I'm looking for? That's what we want, right? We want that to be said over our lives. That Jesus, I hope you find in me what you're looking for. What's he looking for? What's he looking for? Mark 11. Let's find out. Mark 11. And we're going to read a lengthy section, but this is just narrative. We haven't uh, read a section of Scripture like this. It's part of the reason why I love preaching through the Gospels, because they're just, they, tell us, they give us snapshots of Jesus. And there's just so much here. But let's just look at this. This is Jesus and his disciples going up into Jerusalem. Mark 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. They went away, 
found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said. And they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks, that's their coats, on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. You confused? I'm confused. No, I'm actually not. I've studied it. But I can understand why you're confused. (laughs) And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple. And he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written... My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter, he's the the real sharp one, remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Lord, Holy Spirit, please help us to understand what's going on here this Palm Sunday. Help us to understand what you're looking for. We want to understand what you're looking for. We want to examine our lives to see if you find it in us. Lord, if you... if, if If anyone is here and they listen to this sermon and they realize, wow, Jesus is looking for something that he doesn't find in me, I pray that they would turn and give their lives to Jesus. That that then Jesus would bring about in their lives what he desires to see. Lord, would you please help us? Spirit of God, in Jesus' name, amen.
What is Jesus looking for? What's he looking for? What is happening here is as they get near to the city, Jesus starts making some preparations. He's making preparations for his entry into the city of Jerusalem, the city of David. He tells two disciples to go ahead, find a colt tied up, take it and bring it back. And he gives them all these instructions. And it's at this point that I wonder if you guys ever think about things like I think about. Like when you get to make your entry into something, maybe it's your graduation from high school, maybe it's your, uh, the reception at your wedding. You know, whenever there's been an opportunity for you to make a grand entry, how would you plan that? What, what song do you think Jesus wanted playing when he entered into Jerusalem? I think about these things. I don't know if it's just my personality or the way I'm wired, but I think in a weird way about the songs I would like playing. Like if you make a highlight video of me preaching, I've got song selections that I want to be played. I want it to feel a certain way. Wouldn't it be interesting if every week, I wonder how long Brandywine Grace would be in existence, if every week I came from the back with, with my song, like my theme of the week plan, and I was, you know, hopping up and down and coming down the aisle. Wouldn't that be amazing? I wonder how big, still the church might get bigger in some ways if I did that, and might get smaller in some ways if I did that. But just as Jesus' triumphal entry, how is he going to do this? And I got to tell you, I've been perplexed by this section. If you were reading this and wondered, this seems weird, this seems weird, doesn't it? He tells two of his disciples, go on ahead. You're going to find a colt. Can't be one that was ridden on. You're going to find it there. When you walk through the city, it's going to be right there. Just go ahead and take it. But if anybody says anything to you, here's what you should say to them, and they'll let you take it. Then come back and make the preparations. Isn't this weird? What is going on? There's a couple things that are in mind that I want to show you. Mark has this in mind. Jesus has this in mind. And it's Zechariah 9.9. This will help put your Bible together for you a little bit. You don't even have to turn there, but just write it down. I'm going to read it to you because this is what's in Mark's mind. Zechariah was a prophet. He said this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. That's the city that he's headed into. Behold, Your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Prophecy is being fulfilled. Jesus is coming into the city as the king on a colt that has never been ridden. That's on Jesus' mind. It's on Mark's mind. So is what's happening supernatural? Is everything unfolding just strangely because it's supernatural? Or was this a carefully considered plan? Prophecy is being fulfilled, so it's supernatural. But I also believe that this is a carefully considered plan on the part of Jesus. He's planned this out. Jesus has a plan to save you. He didn't save anyone by accident. He knows whom he's going to save. 
And his plan of salvation is unfolding exactly the way he intends. And this entry into Jerusalem is part of that plan. It's a carefully considered plan. So when the disciples walk up and just start to untie that donkey, that that colt, this is part of a plan that's unfolding. It would be kind of like someone coming up into your garage and taking your car. This is the transportation of the day. Someone's taking it. Can you imagine? So someone steps up to take your car, and what do you say? What are you doing with that? Where are you going? And then the agreed-upon password is exchanged. What was the agreed-upon password? The Lord. When the person says, the Lord, you know that you and I have already worked this out. And so what did they say? Oh, the Lord. Yeah, go ahead. He said he'd bring it back in a couple days when he was done with it. It's not Jedi magic. It's a carefully organized plan. Jesus is going to enter the city just as he has planned, and he's organized it. He's planned it. It's carefully considered. The disciples are going to be his cheerleaders, and and he's going to get treated like a dignitary. The the cloaks being laid out on the road and on on the back of the colt for him to lay on is kind of like rolling out the red carpet for the king. And what's so interesting is he's going to get the red carpet treatment here, but within a few days, the same people are going to put him on the cross, are going to crucify him. So he's coming in as a dignitary. And they're shouting Psalm 118. You can go look that up, 25 and 26. The words there that Mark quotes are from Psalm 118. This is the psalm that they sung at all the major festivals that took place in Jerusalem, and they're singing it now. They viewed Jesus as a victorious king. Here comes the contender. He's walking in, and he's a contender for the title king of the Jews. What's going to happen? Right away, verse 11, celebration dissipates. Where does Jesus go? Into the temple. Looks around at everything. It's already late. Then he goes out with Bethany with the 12th. What's he looking for? What's he looking for? He goes into the temple. After the celebration dies down, he goes into the temple and he takes a look around. What's he looking for? We don't know. He didn't tell us yet. When that happens and you're reading your Bible and it says, and when he looked around at everything and you say, what was he looking for? What should you do? Better keep reading. Better keep reading the story. So let's keep reading the story. We got a really interesting story. He sees a fig tree and leaf and he goes, he's hungry and he goes to see if he can find any figs to eat on it. So what's Jesus looking for? He's looking for something to eat. 
more than that. He's looking for figs. Wouldn't that be weird if I left you with that? What's Jesus looking for? Fig Newtons. Happy Easter. He's looking for fruit. But this really gets me. Mark tells us that he's looking for fruit, but it's not even the season for it. It's not even the season for figs. Jesus is looking for figs. It's not even the season, season for figs. Mark tells us that. And then what does Jesus do? Curses a tree. How can you curse a tree that you created in the cycle that it formed figs in and, and expect it to have figs on it, but it's not harvest time? How can you do that? This is, this is why people get wrong ideas about God. It's verses like this. Because you take them out of context, you just isolate them, and you form your whole view of God. Doesn't this seem capricious? Doesn't this seem vindictive? Doesn't this seem angry? This does not seem nice. Like if I, if I show up at one of the local orchards to get some apples at the end of the summer before, before harvest time, there's no apples on the tree, and I go back in and say, yo, where's the apples? And they say, yo, dummy, they don't come until the fall. Curse this place. Burn it to the ground. What is Jesus doing? What's he looking for? What are we to make of this? We can't form an opinion of God from just one section of Scripture. We've got to take in the whole of Scripture. The same Jesus who cursed the fig tree is the one who stopped to heal the blind beggar that no one wanted anything to do with. Something's going on here, and we don't understand it. So what should we do? We should keep reading. Let's go to the next one. Oh, I wish it got easier. I'm digging a terrible hole for myself. Because he leaves the fig tree cursing session, and then he goes into the temple and starts ripping the place apart. I mean, is Jesus just having a bad day? What's going on here? Are we cursing fig trees? It's not even in season. He gets to the temple, starts flipping the tables, turning things over, yelling at everybody. What is going on? Do you understand why he was turning over the tables. Let me explain. People, Jerusalem is being flooded with people right now. Why? Because it's the celebration of the Passover. So Jerusalem is going to, its population is going to swell because it's the Passover. And when you come to celebrate the Passover, Judaism taught that you had to make sacrifices. In order to worship, they needed to pay the temple tax. So in order to even worship in the temple, they had to pay the temple tax. And a lot of them didn't have the right currency. 
So they had to trade in some of their currency and get the right currency so that they could pay the temple tax. The temple tax was legitimate. There's nothing wrong with that. It's part of the law. Not everyone owned animals that they could sacrifice for the Passover in order to make atonement, in order to have their sins taken care of. Not everybody had the money to buy a lamb or goat. Not, that was a symbol of wealth. If you have a lot of lambs and a lot of goats, you were wealthy. There were poor people who didn't have lambs and goats. Just like today. If you have a really big house and a lot of cars, you're rich. If you don't, then you're poor. There was a lot of poor people. They couldn't afford a lamb or a goat, so they sacrificed pigeons. Pigeons were cheaper. That's legit. It's not a problem. So what's the problem? It's verse 16. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. The problem wasn't that they were collecting the temple tax. The problem wasn't that they were selling animals for sacrifice. The problem was where they set their table. It was interrupting what was supposed to happen in the temple. That should have been done outside the temple so that when they came into the temple, they could do what the temple was created for them to do. Do you know what you're supposed to do in the temple? You're supposed to worship. But we can't worship because there's an auction going on in there. We can't worship because people are selling things. The Gentiles were only allowed in certain places of the temple. They don't even have a place to worship because so many people are selling stuff in the space that was reserved for them to actually worship God. The problem that Jesus has is that they've turned the place of worship into a farmer's market into a place of business. And they've done that. The religious leaders have done that. And they're okay with it. And God's not okay with it because worship is being hindered. God's never okay with anything that keeps His people from worshiping Him. Never. God's not. You know how God's not okay with sin? Because He sent Jesus to die for it. God doesn't want anything to hinder his people from worship. So what's Jesus looking for? What's he been looking for in the temple? He's looking for true worship to God. That's what he's expecting to happen in the temple. He's looking for fruit on the fig tree. He doesn't find it. He's looking for true worship in the temple. He doesn't find it. What do we discover here? God's looking for the fruit of true worship, which is the response of someone who has a real, authentic relationship with Him. If Jesus has saved you, you want to worship Him. Nobody has to tell you to do that. It's indicative. When you realize all that Jesus has done, that all your sins that all the bad things I've ever thought, said, and done, if I trust in Jesus, He takes the penalty for those things, and I am set free from the bondage of sin, and, and I'm able to have a relationship now with Him. 
So the relationship is not something that I, man, I got to get up and do this Jesus thing again today. No, it's in light. I don't always do this, but in light of all that he's done for me, I want to worship him. I'm not worshiping him to try to get him to like me. I'm worshiping him because of the sacrifice he made for me. What's Jesus looking for? He's looking for hearts that are truly turned to him. Does he find in you what he's looking for? Is your heart turned to Jesus? If it's not, then what he wants you to hear is it can be. All you have to do is turn to him and say, I need what you came to do. I need you to save me. And when that happens, you enter into a relationship with him and your heart, he produces in you a heart that really loves him. What's Jesus looking for? Authentic worship. He's looking for hearts that are truly turned to him. Now, here's what I I want to do next. What's the indicator that your heart has been truly turned to Jesus in worship? What should happen? So, So we ought to be asking ourselves, well, if Jesus is looking for my heart and a a loving relationship with him, what would be indicators that that has actually happened? There's four right here in this scripture. There's four indications, and they're all categorized. We can categorize them by fruit. If your life has been changed by God, then your life begins to bear fruit. And so what are the four fruits that we see? The first one. The fruit of obedience. The fruit of obedience. Verses 20 and 21. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus is looking for fruit in our lives. The fruit of obedience. Here's where we're going to learn something about the story of the fig tree. The emphasis here was on the green leaves. So Jesus saw from a distance all of the leaves. And the leaves are a promise of something. Vibrant growth is an indicator that one day there will be fruit. Now, a little horticultural lesson. Once a fig tree goes into leaf, the process of forming figs begins. It wasn't yet the harvest time for figs, but the early season figs could have been expected, should have been expected. So because the leaf was in full green, he could have expected some, a snack, if you will, from the early fruit. But there's none. And the fact that there's no fruit creates a violent reaction on the part of Jesus. What's the point? The point is this. The fig tree stands for empty show. It's all show, but no real fruit. What's the point? Jesus is not looking for some kind of religious form. He's looking for the real fruit of a relationship with Him. 
Too many people have religious form. They look good on the outside. They got all kinds of green leaves. But Jesus is saying, I'm looking for fruit. And the fruit comes from a real relationship with me. So it doesn't matter if if a person checks all the right boxes for good person in society. It doesn't matter if your neighbor is just the best neighbor you could possibly have. What matters most is if they have a relationship with Jesus. Because that's what Jesus died and rose again to give them. And Jesus is saying, apart from him, there's no hope. He's the only way. So Jesus is saying here, the worship that's taking place in the temple, people are checking off their boxes. Come to church every Sunday. Check. Do my sacrifice at the Passover. Check. Pray a prayer occasionally. Check. I can check all the boxes. And God is saying, I don't want you to be a box checker. I want to see that you really love me. What's an indication? What's fruit of true love for God? Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. See, we get this all twisted around. We think it says, if you obey me, then I'll save you. It doesn't say anything like that. It says, obedience signifies that you have a relationship with me. If you say you love me, and you've experienced my love, then you will obey. It's not the other way around, but boy, the church gets that mixed up. We're not putting our our confidence in the form of our religion. We're putting our confidence in the Jesus that saved us. And then the fruit of that, the indication of that, is real life obedience. Perfect? I never said that but a a heart that wants to obey Him. A heart that when it does wrong, feels bad over it. That's what Jesus is looking for. Does He find that fruit in you? A desire to obey. A desire to do what His Word says. That should be happening in your life if you're really a Christian. Obedience never justifies. Always signifies. We've got to keep that straight. That's the fruit of obedience. Second fruit, the fruit of faith. He says it right here in verse 22. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. And then He describes that faith. I'm not going to get down deep into all of that, but faith is an indicator, it's a fruit that you have a real relationship with God, that you're really worshiping God. What's faith? It's just trust. It means that you have a practical confidence, practical confidence and practical trust in God that He's going to come through for you. That no matter what it is you're facing, even the worst thing, separation from Him because of your sin, that He's going to provide a plan to take care of that. And that if you trust and believe in Jesus, He's going to save you and keep you for all of eternity. 
That's what faith is. And we do that not by sight. We do it because we believe what the Scriptures say about Him. We believe that when we've trusted Him, that He's going to come through for us. Have you done that? Is there any... It's not perfect. We don't always trust God. Do you ever have doubts? Do you ever have a, 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 a sense of, of troubling thoughts where you're doubting God? That happens in every true believer. We have doubts. But there ought to be this sense that you have experienced somewhere in your heart, God changing your heart so that the fruit of trusting Him is evident. It's not always perfect. It's easier said than done. But it's there in some form. And it probably grows and shrinks over time, if it's anything like my faith. But it's real. I think sometimes it's harder to live for Jesus than it is to die for Jesus. Because I think a lot of you, when put to the test, if somebody came in here and said, you're going to die? You're going to renounce Jesus or die? I think a lot of people would probably die rather than renounce Jesus. If it came to that, would it be hard? Absolutely. But if it's coming down to that, and I think that, but not many of us are going to get a chance to do that. Most of us are going to get a chance to just get up and live for Jesus in a world that puts pressure on us not to live for him. And that's harder to do than just one moment where your life is on the line. I'm not belittling people that have died for Jesus. I'm not. I'm just saying that it's hard to live for Jesus. Have you ever experienced that? You need faith. And it's the fruit of a, relation, of a real relationship with Him. So if you have a real relationship with Jesus, you've got real faith. All right, let's keep moving on. What's the next fruit that we see? Verse 24. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer. What's another indicator that you have a real relationship with God, you actually talk to God sometimes. So all prayer is, is communication with God. And doesn't, don't all these things make total sense? Like if you have a relationship with God, with Jesus, you love Jesus. If you have a relationship with Jesus, you've had to put your trust in Jesus. If you have a relationship with Jesus, you talk to Jesus. You talk to God. We just, J. Russ just led us in the men's breakfast through reading this little pamphlet. It's a great one. You should get it. You can get it online. J.C. Ryle, Call to Prayer. Challenging, though. Man, J.C. Ryle could hit in a way that I, it's like he hits you hard, but you like it. It's weird. Most people don't like getting punched. But he punches me, and I actually enjoy it. All right, we'll read it. Read his call to prayer. But this is what he says. He starts his pamphlet with this. Do you pray? Do you pray? And then he says this. If you don't, you're not a Christian. Whoa, J.C., there isn't there. No, he says, but it makes common sense. He says, listen, if you, if you say you have a relationship with someone, you talk to that someone. That's all he's saying. He's saying if, if Jesus has saved you and you love him, then you'll talk to him. Then you'll pray to him. That makes total sense to us. I have a relationship with my wife, and I talk to her. Not because it's my duty. I talk to her because I actually really like her. 
I talk to her because I love her. If you say you have a relationship with someone, but you say, but I never have any time to talk to them, that's weird. See, a lot of us, we're growing up in this social media world. We actually think we know people and talk to people because we follow them on Instagram. No, I'm talking about real communication. Does it happen every day for hours? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that one of the fruits, and Jesus is saying, one of the indications that you have a real love for Jesus is that you periodically talk with him in prayer. You tell him what's on your heart, and you listen to what's on his heart. Praying. Do you do that? Do you see the fruit of prayer in your life? If you do, it's an indication that you have a relationship with Jesus. If you don't, it's an indication that you may not have a relationship with Jesus, that Jesus wants to give you this Easter. What else? It's the fruit of forgiveness. Let me ask the band to return. The fruit of forgiveness. He says that. You see it? I'm just, do you see what's happening here? I want to get back into a long section of Scripture like this because what all I'm doing is just reading the text to you and walking right down through it. I'm not, I'm not like taking things from all over in the Bible. I'm saying, what is the fruit? I'm saying the fruit is coming right from these passages. I'm showing it to you. Well, what, else, what other fruit is there? You look. Look at verse 25. You read it. See if you can find another fruit. Here it is. We're going to read it. Whenever you stand praying, you already told us that. You already told us that prayer is the fruit of forgiveness. Whenever you stand praying, there it is. What is it? Forgive. Forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. So Jesus is saying there's another indication. There's another fruit that indicates you have a real relationship with him. Do you know what it is? Your willingness to forgive other people. Now stop and let's think about that one for a second. That's easier said than done, isn't it? What I'm trying to do is teach you a principle here. Jesus is teaching you a principle. He's not nuancing it for every person. He's just saying the principle is this. In light of the mercy that has been shown to you through Jesus, what you didn't deserve, you go and show that same mercy to others. Remember when the disciples were asking him, how many times should I forgive? Seven? Seven times? Like how long? Seven times seven? What are you? Over and over and over and over again. It's hard to do. How do you do it? You can't do it. You can't do it. It's impossible apart from Jesus. That mountain won't move. Unless Jesus, faith and trust in Him, moves it. So we're asking this question, is there a willingness to forgive? See, this is what I see in my life and in so many of your lives as well that God wants to help us with, is we look at our own sins, the things that we do that are wrong, and we measure them, but we measure them differently than we measure other people's sins. It's like when, when I measure my sin, it seems so small. But if you do the same thing that I've just done to me, boy, I got the yardstick out. And I'm measuring. Look at this. Look what you've done. Look what you've done. Look what you've done. Jesus said with the measure you use, 
that's the ruler that's going to be used against you. So if you're someone that's trying to get precise measurements on everybody else's sin, but then with your sin, well, Jesus forgive me for that. That's a problem. Jesus said you can't possibly be extended the kind of mercy that he has extended to sinners and not extend it to others. That's his point. What about if you're sitting in here and you're saying, Kenny, you have no idea. You have no idea the way that I have been hurt, the way I've been sinned against, the abuse that I have endured, and you're telling me that I'm not a Christian because I can't forgive? What I want to say to you is, I know that it hurts. And forgiveness is a process. And and God help you in that situation. And He will and He wants to. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying that maybe God will do in your life what's impossible for you to do, but is completely possible for Him. Will you ever get there? I don't know. But let's get there saying, Jesus Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and start with me. That's what he's wanting to help us with. I'm not not intending to belittle someone who's really suffering pain. Who's saying, hey, it's really hard to forgive. The fact that you're even saying I'm wrestling with that is indicative of Jesus changing your heart and giving you a relationship with Him. Palm Sunday. What's Jesus looking for? We should be able to summarize it easily. He's looking for a heart. Turn to Him. What's the fruit of that? Obedience. Faith. Prayer. And forgiveness. You have that? That's what he died to give you. Amen? Let's stand and sing.